0: So you want to know who wrote the book? With Hebrews we don't. You want to know when it was written? With Hebrews we can only guess more or less. You want to know to whom it's written? With Hebrews we don't know exactly who, where they were living. What was the general purpose or the main aim? Well that we can figure out because the writing speaks for itself. It's also good to have an outline, and I'm not going to do an outline today, but having an outline when you study a book is really useful, and sometimes you only get a feel for what the outline is after you've read through it a few times. So I want to encourage you, before I go and do an outline on Hebrews, why don't you just read it sometime in the next couple of weeks, maybe by next Sunday, maybe read chapter 1 and 2 of the book of Hebrews, but um, it's it's a little bit too long for us to go through every single verse as I preach, but we'll do we'll do it at varying paces over the coming weeks. um, what what is the book of Hebrews? Well, it's in the New Testament and it's a medium length book, and if you were to read it yourself it should take you less than an hour, start to finish, thirteen chapters, forty four minutes according to NIV and forty five minutes according to some other analysis. I looked because, you know, it's good to know before you You know, and undertake like the eating of an elephant. You want to know how many mouthfuls you're going to eat. (laughs) Hebrews used to be my favorite book in the Bible. It may still be my favorite book. I just haven't gone back to it that much in the last few years. But when I was a young Christian and I started to understand how the new covenant, the, the, the thing that we come into in Christ, how it is a kind of a perfection of everything that was wrong with the old and the completion of all the requirements of the Old. I got very excited by the book of Hebrews because it told me a whole lot about Jesus and what he did for us, and also how awesome Jesus is. And when I I looked at the book of Hebrews, I thought this book is a bit of a a mystery because no one really knows who wrote it. And um, for me, that was kind of intriguing at first, not from the academic point of view, but the point of view that in our Bible, there's... a a book or a letter that's been written that we actually can't trace back to a specific person. And I thought for a while about that, and why would God allow that to happen? I even speculated in my mind that maybe this book is so important that God just wrote it and slipped it in there, you know, supernaturally just put it on paper and didn't sign an author because there wasn't a human author, you know, of course that would have been an absolute miracle, but um, absolute miracles happen. Could it be that hebrews is so important that it has to be in the bible even though we don't know exactly who wrote it well that's definitely the case over the years people have supposed that it could have been written by paul or barnabas or apollos or silas or aquila and priscilla even clement of rome and for some time in my life people were saying you know paul wrote the book of hebrews and the, the funny thing is that that never sits with me when I when I think about it, because I read through the Book of Hebrews maybe uh, four times before I even cared about who had authored it, and you get a feel for what you're reading and how it flows. And it's like when I read Isaiah, I struggle. I always struggle with Isaiah. I, I go. As much as i can i try and work through it sequentially and try and understand everything that's going on and it just feels to me like it's not cohesive there's something that i struggle with in Isaiah, now that could be just me you know some guys that's the book they wrote their thesis on and they love it i loved hebrews so i read it just to absorb the content just to see what is what's written there like when i was younger i read lots and lots of cs lewis and you can easily tell when you're reading cs lewis His arguments run over pages in his books. When you read C.S. Lewis it's like you kind of have to follow what he's thinking carefully and try to work out what his reasoning is because he's so bright that he puts arguments together that aren't just little sound bite points that you can make in a paragraph. So you have to read this paragraph, then that, then that, then that and eventually something magnificent emerges in his thinking and he communicates that way. Now when you read Paul's writing You get a sense of how Paul thinks and how he articulates ideas. You can see that in the book of Romans, you can see it in his other letters, Galatians and Ephesians, and you know when you're reading Paul. But when you read Hebrews, you're not reading Paul. It's definitely not Paul. So, sorry, there's tons of guys that thought it was Paul, but they're wrong, it just can't be. And, And to add weight to this, of course, The guys who have looked at this know paul frequently appealed to his own apostolic authority in his letters paul an apostle he often writes at the beginning of the letter and he talks about the authority he gave and when he speaks about his ministry he speaks about how he got his revelation from jesus that's who paul appeals to as his mentorship he doesn't say i learned this from james or i learned this from peter instead he's the guy rebuking peter he, he says, I met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That's how Paul writes, and his authority came from Jesus. But in Hebrews, in Hebrews 2 verse 3, the writer says, How shall we escape if we neg- neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So this writer is saying that, they, that this salvation stuff, came to us from others, from those who heard. So there's a second generation idea there. There's the idea that this has been handed down from others to us, and the writer includes himself in that us category, completely unlike anything Paul would have said. The author also displays outstanding literary and rhetorical skill. Um, The style is a model of Hellenistic prose, and all the quotes The scriptures that are referred to in the book of Hebrews are quoted out of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. So you've got this source material that's being referenced is all Greek translated from the the Hebrew Old Testament. So Paul never does that anywhere else in all his writing. He always goes back to the Hebrew. He doesn't go to the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Another argument why it's not... Not Paul. Anyway, we can safely say, as the theologian Origen said in the third century, that only God knows who wrote Hebrews. Only God knows who wrote Hebrews. And so this adds this mystery to the book, which I love because I love something that isn't quite that clear that you really have to think hard about, wrestle over, and grapple with. And I actually, personally, I I side with. If I'm going to speculate, I'm with Martin Luther, who said it was probably Apollos who wrote it. Other people have said, as I, I listed there, a whole bunch of options Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Silas, Aquila, and Priscilla. Well, I go with Apollos, so we'll find out after this laugh. Yeah. <laughs> so, who wants to join me? Who wants to oppose me? Let's wait and see. It's fascinating that many people want to attribute this book to Paul because they want to have a sense of authority of the writer. But actually what qualifies the um, contents of the Bible we have to be part of the canon of Scripture is that their content carries the ring of truth. I don't know what phrase to use for it, except that it has all the hallmarks of authentic Christianity. When you go and read some of the... um, apocryphal books. There are various other extra-biblical, outside-of-the-canon books that were written around the same time, and you read those and you think, man, that doesn't feel like Scripture. That feels like man philosophy. We used to get this other book, and it's not really apocrypha, I don't know what they call it when it's the Old Testament forms, but like in our school assembly, they used to read from the book of Ecclesiasticus. And it's like... It just doesn't gel with scripture the more you read it you think somebody made this stuff up it's not inspired and if you read the gospel of thomas which is you know you can find on the internet it's like dude you're just not actually with the rest of the team you're on your own mission this is your own ideas and so when it comes to what puts the 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 canon of scripture together it's that the church not just a, a committee not just a centralized government, but the people of God over centuries figured out which of these texts are genuine, based on exactly the, the thought, the heart, the content, not solely authorship. And so it doesn't have to be that the author was an apostle. Uh, and that's already the case with other books like uh, Mark and Luke, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, the, Luke wasn't one of the original disciples of Jesus. Um, Mark wasn't. But they got to write gospels that are are included in the canon. Why? Because of who they were with and the authenticity of what they wrote. So, um, Mark was not one of the original disciples. He was traditionally seen as a disciple of Peter. He was an evangelist and he spent much of his time with apostles, including Paul and Peter. And the gospel, according to Mark, is most likely much influenced by Peter's recollections. So its authenticity is there, but the authorship doesn't have to be an apostle. So in this case, what makes Hebrews so spectacular is that they recognized that the content was so important that they would put it into the canon of scripture, even without knowing who the author was. That's profound to me. That means Hebrews was considered a vitally important book because even without credentials, its content was so significant that by 300 or so, the Council of Nicaea, I think it was, the guys said finally this is now part of the canon of scripture, we are recognizing it. But that was a consensus that emerged from church history, it emerged not just from a bishop in Rome, in fact Rome was no more represented at the Council of Nicaea than many other local churches most of the churches just sent two bishops to the council and the whole wider body of christ was actually being heard in what they established in that council and part of that was to deal with the inclusion of hebrews as part of the canon of scripture for those of you that are interested in the idea of where the bible comes from there are two miracles at work there's the miracle of god inspiring writers so god by his spirit would would superintend over a man as he wrote a letter to another church like Paul writing to the Galatians and God would inspire him to say things and guide him in his thinking not control him but basically there was a supernatural influence that made sure that what we needed was written to to understand who God is and so that inspiration of scripture is the one part. But the canonization of scripture we take with the measure of faith too. The idea of that process by which we end up with the Bible. We have to believe that God has cared enough to help the church sift between that which is authentic and that which is false. And so we look at the canonization of scripture as a miracle too. It was a process guided by the Spirit of God. Ultimately so that we have a Bible which is complete complete. And doesn't need anything outside of it to give us the truth you don't need more than the Bible you don't need the gospel of Thomas you don't need Ecclesiasticus you don't need other apocryphal texts. extra biblical and alongside of the Bible knowledge is useful because then you understand history and context better but what's in the Bible is sufficient and complete and Hebrews had to be there so when was it written The book of Hebrews was written somewhere from the 60s to the 90s, I don't mean the 1960s to the 90s, I mean the original 60s, before the hippies. Um, The 60s to the 90s meaning kind of in the very early church but not the first generation. In Hebrews 2 verse 3, we've just looked at this already, we see that it's a generation that heard from a previous generation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So Hebrews 2 verse 3 shows us it's a generation on. In Hebrews 5 verse 12, this second generation of Christians is is being rebuked for not being mature yet. So Hebrews 5 verse 12 says, uh, you ought to be teachers by now, but you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God, you need milk, not solid food. So they've been rebuked for not being grown up. So they're not young Christians. In Hebrews 10, verse 32, it says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They've got a history. These guys have lived their faith for a long time already. So they're years into Christianity. And by Hebrews 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. So there's a past tense to the writing of Hebrews. There's a history behind it. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we see that Hebrews is not a new book on the scene in terms of church history. It's the second generation of believers that are looking at it. And um, it's referenced in the book of 1 Clement, which is an outside of the Bible book. So that helps us date this book. That's why I said outside of the Bible books were good for historical knowledge, not theological knowledge necessarily. So here we see one clement was written for sure in 95 because it is dated and it references Hebrews. So Hebrews was written before AD 95. It was also not directly during persecution that Hebrews was written, but between persecutions. Now there was a persecution under Nero in AD 64 and there was another persecution under Domitian around 85. So we know it's between 64 and 85. The lack of the in the book of any reference to the destruction of the temple, which happened in AD 70, means it's fairly likely it was written just before then. So maybe AD 68. But it could also be after the destruction of the temple. Maybe the, the, the writer just didn't make reference to it. Anyway, if you want to know when it's written, it's the late 60s to, the, to maybe around about 80 AD. That gives you quite an accurate window. And who was it written to? Well, three things. This is from a study Bible. Three things you can consider when you want to know about readership. What was their uh, racial background? Um, In fact, some people have said that maybe they were Gentiles, but really most evidence points to the idea that these are Jewish believers, even the title to the Hebrews. But what's interesting is by various studies you can work out that they probably weren't uh, they weren't the main body of Hebrews neither in Rome itself nor in Jerusalem. It was probably a church that was like, you know you get these expat churches. Uh, you could go to um, the, the one I visited in Mauritius. There are a whole lot of South Africans there. You find a whole bunch of South Africans in another place, not you know and it could be that there were a whole bunch of Hebrews gathered together somewhere near Rome. It was just a bunch of those guys that most likely (coughs) is being addressed in this book. The reason we also know that it's most likely Hebrew people, Jewish background, is because the writer makes so many references to the prophets, the angels ministering to Israel, to citations concerning the Levitical worship system. So they were expected to be familiar with a whole lot of Jewish history. But where exactly were they? Well, not Jerusalem, most likely. Most people think somewhere in Italy, and so Rome or Italy is the answer that we generally accept to be where these people were living. See, they weren't poor. In Hebrews 6 verse 10, 10 it says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. So they were able to resource saints. They were serving, and often that in, in Scripture is giving something to support. So they were helping the wider church. You're not in a position to do that at that time in history if you're living in Jerusalem. If you're in living in anywhere in Palestine, you're poor at that time. There was a difficulty economically in that region. So we know these guys were not really in Palestine or in, in Jerusalem. And Hebrews 10 verse 34 Hebrews 10 verse 34 says, You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They've been through a persecution, but they had stuff to be plundered. The plundering of your property? Well, if you're poor, you don't really have anything for someone to plunder. No one goes and plunders the poor man. Okay, so these guys had some money. They weren't in Jerusalem. That's what we can conclude from from that. So, um... Then in Hebrews 13 verse 24, we see this phrase in the concluding relational greetings and it says those from Italy greet you or those from greet all your leaders, those who come from Italy send you greetings. So the writer, wherever he is, has got some Italians with him and they're greeting these guys back home in Italy. So that kind of wraps up the idea of where's the the audience, the audience is in Italy, the writer is outside of Italy. Okay, why is all of this important? It just helps us to understand who's dealing with whom and about what. So it makes greater sense of the meaning of the book of Hebrews if we know the kind of people it's written to. It's written to believers who've been believers for a long time, they have a Jewish background, they're living outside of Jerusalem. They're probably in Italy and, uh, and they're being challenged in their faith and they're shaking a bit because they're thinking of going back to the old. Some of them were looking back towards uh, the, the law again and they were in danger of falling away from the faith and this writer is writing to bring them straight again, to keep them true. So here's the question then we wanna know, what is their spiritual condition? Most were believers, of course in every church group there could doubtless be some people who just profess faith, but the author calls it in in, in Hebrews 13 verse 22, he calls this letter a word of exhortation. It's a letter of encouragement, it's a word of exhortation, and this is because some were in danger of abandoning their faith in Christ and reverting to Judaism. The readers are persecuted to some extent, but not to the point of being martyred. So in Hebrews 10 it says you haven't resisted to the shedding of your blood, you haven't been killed for your faith. So they're under some pressure, some of them are in danger of falling away, but it's not an extreme, it's not an extreme persecution like the ones under Nero and Domitian. So this means it's good for guys like you and me, living in a hard life, sometimes suffering some battles, feeling like we've been walking with God for a long time, and then occasionally you feel just like a little bit tired. And in some cases, people hit a wobbly during the course of their faith, where they things are going so wrong for so long that they start thinking, is Jesus even worth it? Is this Christianity thing really all it's supposed to be? And I don't know about you, but many believers, they come in full of the... The, the, the sort of let's say the feelings of wow, I'm born again. When they first get saved everything is awesome and God is amazing and church is the best. And that lasts like a honeymoon phase. And then comes something that doesn't fit into your thinking and God doesn't bail you out of some difficulty and and, and someone in the church doesn't greet you and then you get the preacher preaching a message you don't like. And then someone, you know, and after a while you think like, I'm not sure that I really like this stuff anymore. And three, four, five years into your faith, some, some people go on a big wobble. A book like Hebrews can be extremely helpful because it can tell you why you shouldn't wobble. And so, actually, the letter is a stirring apologetic. That means an, an, an explanation, an argument, a persuasive discussion on the superiority of Christ and Christianity over Judaism in terms of priesthood and sacrifice. And for the remainder of my message today, I'm going to explain the purpose of this book some more. If you wanted a theme, it's the superiority, superiority of Christ yes. and Christianity. The words better, perfect and heavenly appear again and again and again. Yeah. The outline shows how the theme is developed by proving that Christ is superior both in his person and in his priesthood. So it centers on Jesus. This book is magnificent because it speaks all about Jesus as what, who he is and how he could accomplish what he accomplished and how much greater he is than any alternative. William Barclay in his commentary on the letter to the Hebrews put forward different ways in which people derive meaning from their faith. And he describes four grand ideas of how you as a believer would find meaning for your faith. And I, I want to go through what he says so that we can all benefit from understanding how Scripture addresses us so personally and so specifically so there's four ways people would generally come looking for God. For one person, it's about inward fellowship with God. A union with Christ that is intimate and close. Christians can be said to live in Christ and Christ in them. So that's how some people look at their faith. They say it's all about inward fellowship with God and that was actually Paul's conception of faith. Paul, as an apostle, he wrote a great deal about Christ in you, to live as Christ, to die as gain. You're in him, he's in you. It's this union, this mystical union, it's intimate faith. That's how Paul viewed things. And if you're looking for God that way, then when you start to read Paul's stuff in the New Testament, it will it will say to you, yes, I see it. I see how I can be one with God he's in me, I'm in him. To some, the faith is about that which gives us a standard for life and the power to reach that standard. That's what James and Peter emphasize. When you read about uh, James talking about show some works with your faith and Peter talking strongly about the conduct of your life and repentance, it's like Christianity is a standard. there's There's a A life that you must live for the glory of God, but it's not like the law, because it's not just a standard, but it has grace to empower you to live up to that standard. So James says genuine faith is proved by works, he's not driving you to works, he's driving you to genuine faith, which will be demonstrated in works. So for James and Peter there's a standard by which you should live your life. We need that. We need Paul's understanding that there's a union with Christ, we need Peter and James to tell us there's a standard by which we must live and there's grace to empower us. To some, it's the highest satisfaction of their minds. For some people, their minds seek and seek until they finally discover that that there is rest in God. There is an end to the seeking for the truth. Plato Said the unexamined life is a life not worth living. For some people they have to understand things in order to make sense of life. And that's a characteristic of John's writing. So when John writes, he writes, like if you read John, his actual gospel, chapter 1 you will see extremely rational arguments being put forward. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And and he goes on and he explains the faith in terms that satisfy the mind. Beautiful. God's not just saying just believe and don't have any reasons. He's saying when you believe, there's a foundation for your faith that's built on truth that is reasonable. So, For some people to understand and make sense of life, they need this, and John, he writes like that. But the fourth kind of person, and that's where Hebrews comes in. The fourth kind of person, it's about access to God. It's that which removes the barriers and opens the door to His living presence. That's what the faith is when it comes to the writer of the letters to the Hebrews. His mind was dominated by the idea. Of access to God and how Christ makes that possible yeah. and so that's a new theme that you don't get from the other writers you don't get it from Peter and James and John and Paul in this Hebrews you get an understanding of access to God it's a beautiful description just looking at those four things makes me admire what God's done for us in his word that he's said to you if you're If you're seeking this, here's how it works. If you're seeking me and you want access to me, this is how you can understand it from Hebrews. If you want to understand the reason for everything, look at John chapter 1 or the whole of John's writing. If you want to know about union with Christ, read Paul's writing. But God is basically feeding you at every level of every need. It's beautiful. So... God is truly multifaceted and able to meet the longing and need of every one of us. In the letter to the Hebrews, the essential theme is captured right here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 22. We will read Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Can you see how the barriers are taken away? And the call is let us draw near. And that if you wanted to put in a phrase, what is, what is Hebrews about? It's about Jesus be better because He made the way open and you can draw near to God. That's where we can get to. We can have access to God. And when we look at the book of Hebrews, by the end of this journey you're going to be like, wow, I am in awe of Jesus because He made this possible. That's where we can get to, we can have access to God. Of course, even that has different meanings to different people depending on where they're coming from the book of hebrews will speak to you, depending on your background doesn't matter you could come from here or here it will pull you towards christ it will show you he's the way and in this sense the writer to the hebrews had a a very special background in his personal life he was able to understand both greeks and jews the hebrews and the gentile world and he actually drew on that. And so he would basically show that Jesus is the answer to each man's search. So stick with me for a few more minutes. A few more thoughts to share. Greek thought. So the way Greek people thought. From the time of Plato in about 500 BC, they were occupied with the ideas of contrasts between the real and the unreal. So Greek philosophy grappled with this idea of what's really real. We still do that. Do you know how many people are talking on the internet about whether all this is a simulation? I don't know if you've read some of that stuff. It is weird, it is interesting, but some people think that the whole program is just a simulation and you're actually maybe just part of one corner of an AI. Anyway consciousness it's a it's a big debate so what's really real and it's uh, its a bit beyond me but uh, I, I suppose when i was much younger i was trying to work out how do i prove if i really exist or how do i prove if you really exist uh, it leads you to drastic thought like you'll only really know if you kill someone or get killed so don't go too far down that road but it was a a greek idea that somewhere there was a real world of which this was only a shadowy and imperfect copy. Plato proposed the idea that somewhere there was a world perfect, a world of perfect forms or ideas or patterns, of which everything in this world is actually an imperfect copy. Now, he must have been a genius because he was looking at this world and he realized it was broken. He was looking at the effects of sin but he didn't have a theology of sin but he could look at it and say this isn't how it's supposed to be but how do you know how it's supposed to be unless there's a perfect pattern so that's what greek thought was doing 500 years before this time they were saying there is a perfect out there somewhere in the unseen we don't know but everything we have here must be patterned off it just wrong just not working properly A Jewish thinker influenced by Plato said God knew from the beginning that a fair copy could never come into being apart from a fair pattern and that none of the objects perceivable by sense could be flawless unless they were modeled after an archetype and spiritual idea. Thus when God prepared to create this visible world. He shaped beforehand the ideal world in order to constitute the corporeal, the, the one that's physical, after the incorporeal and godlike pattern. So people had this idea that there's a perfect pattern and that the earth is actually a temporary and imperfect copy of a perfect pattern. The Roman statesman Cicero, speaking about the laws people know and use on earth, said, We have no real and lifelike likeness of real law and genuine justice. So the Roman law, South Africa, for example, is built on a Roman Dutch law system. Even the guys who made that law, the Roman statesman Cicero, speaks about the laws that people know and use on earth, and he says, we have no real and lifelike likeness of real law and genuine justice. All we enjoy is a shadow and a sketch. So they knew there's something much purer There's something much better. But on earth, the justice system doesn't work perfectly. But we know there is justice somewhere. There's no real justice on earth. There's not perfect retribution or perfect punishment or perfect compensation. There's no redemption that really redeems. I mean, if I offend you, I can say sorry, but you still remember that I offended you. It's never perfect again. It's broken. And if you go to jail for two years for shoplifting, is that really right? But you need some kind of justice. But even the makers of the law realize there must be a perfect pattern somewhere. The best we can do is try and get closer to it. Well, Barclay explains that the thinkers of the ancient world all had the idea that somewhere there's a real world of which this one is only a copy. And here we can only guess and feel our way. Here we can work only with copies and imperfect things, but in the unseen world, there are the real and perfect things. This kind of thinking, when you start to let it penetrate into your heart and soul, you'll stop living for this world. You'll stop thinking everything that you need is here. You'll realize everything that's here is actually pointing you towards, or supposed to point you towards, the real thing that will occupy you for eternity. And your time on earth is actually supposed to just prepare you for the real eternity that God wants for you. And you're living in the broken pattern, I mean thing patterned off the perfect pattern. But we must look for the perfect pattern like Abraham who looked for a city whose builder was God, not man. When the great churchman John Henry Newman died, they erected a statue to him on the pedestal and they, ins- they inscribed Latin words. I'm not Latin, so I can't pronounce these words. Ex umbras et imaginibus in veritatum. Always sounds like the you know, PowerPoint template that nobody filled in. Now you know how old I am. What that means in English is, away from the shadows and the semblances and into the truth. So he dies and he says, I'm leaving the shadows and the semblances and I'm going to what's real. The unseen world is the real. The eternal is the real. What we're living in is temporary and passing. If that is so, clearly the great task of this life is to get away from the shadows and the imperfections and to reach reality. This is exactly what the writer to the Hebrews claims that Jesus Christ can enable us to do. To the Greeks, the writer is saying, all your lives, you've been trying to get from the shadows to the truth. This is just what Jesus can enable you to do. In Jesus, you'll find that you move from the shadows to the truth, from the fake to the real. You'll find that everything this life tells you that's a lie and disappoints you, but you can have what you're longing for in Jesus. And to the Jews, it's a very different situation, but also relevant to most of us. See, for Jews, unlike Greeks, they had a concept of God, not just philosophies. I'm sure the Greeks had their gods too, but to the Jews, it was very specific. They had God, but their problem that was, it's dangerous to come near to God. In Exodus 33 verse 20, speaking to Moses, God said, no one shall see me and live. And then Jacob exclaims after he has an encounter with God, I've seen God face to face and yet my life is preserved. Jacob is stunned that he could have met with God. He wrestled and he, he's like, I'm not dead. I've seen God face to face, yet my life was preserved. Similarly for Manoah, who realized his visitor had been, so this guy Manoah, he gets an encounter, you can read about it in Judges 13, and he realizes the angelic visitor was the angel of the Lord. The Lord came to Manoah, and he says to his wife, we shall surely die, for we've seen God. Now that's how Jewish people felt about God. If you got too close to Him, you would die. I remember Indian Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Open that thing, die. That's what happens when you come into God's holiness. Open the box, die. So, basically that's how the Jews felt about God. Some of you feel about God the same way, because of your sin. You think, I can't go near to God. I'm too much of a sinner. The great day of Jewish worship was the Day of Atonement. That was the one day of the whole year when the High Priest entered the Holy of Holies where the the very presence of God was held to dwell. No one ever entered in except the High Priest and he only on that day, on the Day of Atonement. When he did, the law specified that he must not even linger in the holy place for long, lest he put Israel in terror. You see, the high priest, the most holy guy in the whole nation, could only go into the presence of God for a short time on one day of the year. That's how terrifying the presence of God is. That's how holy God is. We should recognize that's still true today. You should know that God is utterly holy and you in your sin would be utterly destroyed if you came here to. And so the high priest would go in with that rope attached to him with the bells on his clothing so they could hear him doing his duties there in the Holy of Holies that he could only hurry up and finish because if he stayed too long, he could mess up and die. And of course, he had to make purification for himself and purification for Israel and purification for himself and purification for Israel year after year and risk being struck dead. In view of this, the idea of a covenant came into Jewish thought. God, in His grace, and in a way that was quite unmerited, approached the nation of Israel and offered them a special relationship with Himself. But this unique access to God was conditional on the observance by the people of the law that He gave them. We can see this relationship being entered into and the law being accepted in a dramatic scene in Exodus chapter 24. I actually wanted to read this. I know I'm running late. Exodus 24. When the covenant is confirmed, Moses took half of the blood, this is Exodus 24 verse 6. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And in verse 9 then moses and aaron nadab and abihu and 70 of the elders of israel went up and they saw the god of israel and they saw the god of israel that's how verse 10 begins israel gets approached by god and he gives them a covenant and they follow the ceremonies and they make the sacrifices and they perform some kind of a cleansing atonement And in the end result is, they can access God and not be killed. Now, how precious should the presence of God be? How precious should this access to God be for us? If that's what they would risk to access God, and God in His grace and mercy would allow this chosen nation Israel to have a way, imperfect as it was, To be temporarily cleansed so that just one guy, once a year, after that, would be able to go into the presence of God. And he did, at the risk of his life. How do you value the presence of God? How do you value access to God? See, this should stun us. We should be like, wow, there was blood, blood put on people. Only the leaders could go, but they saw the God of Israel. What, what, what? You can't put a price on that privilege. You can't put a, a value to the, the the gift of God's grace that He's saying, you can come and meet with me. You can draw near to me. You can come into my presence. And, and we as believers, we should hallow the presence of God. Who He is, His name, and the fact that we have access to God. And Israel never had anything close to perfect because only one guy could go in and represent the nation and he could only do it in a hurry and he had to do it again and again and again so Israel had access to God but only if the people kept the law to break the law was sin and sin put up a barrier which stopped the way to God do you still live like that It was to take away that barrier that the system of the Levitical priesthood and all the sacrifices were constructed. The law was given, the people sinned, the barrier was up, the sacrifice was made, and the sacrifice was designed to open the way to God that had been closed. But the experience of life was that this was precisely what the sacrifices couldn't do. It was proof of the ineffectiveness of the whole system that sacrifice had to go on and on and on. It was a losing and ineffective battle to remove the barrier that sin had erected between men and women and God. Now some believers are still, Christians are still living in that paradigm. They're thinking like, I've sinned, I must repent, or I can't come near to God, I've got to do some kind of penance, I've I've got to make right. I've got to make right, 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 I've got to make right. I'm bad. I can't go to God. I'm bad. I can't go to God. That's when you understand what Jesus did. It takes you into a better covenant. What was needed was a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. Someone who could bring to God a sacrifice that once and for all opened the way of access to him. That, said the writer to the Hebrews, is exactly what Christ did. He is the perfect priest because he is both perfectly human and perfectly God. In his humanity he can take us to God, and in his Godhead he can take God to us. He has no sin. The perfect sacrifice he brings is the sacrifice of himself. A sacrifice so perfect that it never needs to be made again. To the Jews, the writer to the Hebrews said, All your lives you've been looking for the perfect priest who can bring the perfect sacrifice and give you access to God. You have Him in Christ and in Him alone. So that's that's where my notes finish. If you understand what Hebrews is about, this book, I don't know if this is going to come on again. I'll put it in, in summary to the Greeks. The writer to the Hebrews said, you're looking for the way from the shadows to reality. You'll find that in Christ Jesus. To the Jews, the writer to the Hebrews said, you're looking for that perfect sacrifice which will open the way to God, which your sins have closed. You'll find it in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the one person who gave access to reality and access to God. That's the key thought of the book of Hebrews. So I want to put it to you. As we study this book together, let God's Word show you that He's absolutely all you need. That Jesus is the answer to every question, every search. When you're looking for truth, when you're looking for reality, when you're looking to move from darkness to light, Jesus is the way. When you're looking for something that could deal with who you are and your sin, Jesus is the answer. When you want to access God, you can come because of what Jesus has done as a perfect priest and a perfect sacrifice. Those are the things we're going to understand much, much better. Won't you stand the band?